Thank you, Zach, for leading us in worship, and uh, thank you, Pastor Alex and Jenna, for your kind invitation and hospitality. It is a, a privilege to be with you all this morning. Uh, bring greetings from uh, our fellowship at Cross Point in Clemson, Pastor Ken, Pastor Jeremy, uh, many others who love you, and I recognize familiar faces here as well that we have seen in past uh, fellowship together in Clemson. So what a privilege to be with you. This morning we'll be looking in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 12, if you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word. Romans chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8 together, entitled my message today, How the Gospel Shapes the Church. Verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Would you pray with me now? Our Father, we come to you now to the pure food of your living word and we invite you to speak to us through your spirit in Jesus name amen. amen what is the shaping influence of the church as we think around the, the climate of the church in America we see biker churches rodeo churches rock and roll churches. We see churches built around big personalities, winsome communicators that quickly scatter uh, when a leader transitions. Or for churches in our camp of more reformed, leading, confessional practices, there still may be other wrong things that we may build our church around. Perhaps separation from the world Perhaps comfort with people that are like myself. Finding an insulated country club mentality can be a temptation. Having nice buildings, great order, even a young church plant like Emmanuel Church could quickly find itself like thousands of other churches in America with no power, with no compelling witness, to this community. 
So friends at Emmanuel Church, this morning my charge and what we'll see from God's word today is that it must be and it is the gospel that shapes the church. It must be and must remain forever the gospel that is the shaping influence of the church. If we ever slip into a mentality that what we're doing is the right thing and begin to trust our methods, we begin to find that we're trusting in our own strength and no longer in the gospel. And then we will find ourselves vanilla and perishing. The gospel shapes the church. And I'd like to observe three large points supporting this idea from Romans chapter 12. It shapes the church as it forms our identity. Secondly, the gospel shapes the church as it creates our belonging. And thirdly, the gospel shapes the church as it gifts us to work. It gifts us to work. First, it forms our identity. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, I'm sure many of you would share with me verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 as a favorite passage of Scripture. And you may recall that if you were to most simply uh, break down an outline of the book of Romans into two parts, chapters 1 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 16 form the sweeping uh, two sections of the, book of, of the book of Romans. Chapter 1 through 11, Paul lays out the most comprehensive defense and explanation or exposition of the gospel message. He shows that all men, without, without exception, are condemned justly by a holy God and that the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is the only sufficient uh, atonement and redemptive message for all mankind. And that's expounded whether Jew or Greek throughout chapters 1 through 11. You could summarize it with the word doctrine. And then verses 12 through 16 could be summarized with the word application. What are we to do with this message of redemption provided in the gospel? And so here we begin in verse 1 of chapter 12 when Paul says, Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercies. He's referring to this great message of God's mercy. He's just spent 11 chapters explaining in view of God's mercy. And Paul argues that there is really one only reasonable response to this message of redemption. That is that we would offer our whole lives in total devotion to God. That is the only reasonable response, Paul argues. He says this is your, your reasonable act of worship or your spiritual service of worship is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God entire devotion. You see, friends, the gospel message doesn't come and merely tinker with our affections. It doesn't just tinker around with our lives. But when we surrender to the Lord Jesus, he claims lordship over all. It is a death to ourselves, and we are made alive to God in Christ. A Christian is not one who treats this gospel message like it is just our park pass entrance into Carowinds. 
It's not just the entrance, but we see the hope of the gospel is the very foundation of our entire dwelling in our lives as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't give us hope and then move us into legalistic performance to please God, nor does it give us hope and then leave us to live life with with worldly desires without regard for the lordship of Christ. He claims in our supreme supreme allegiance over our lives as we present our bodies as living sacrifice. So as we live lives of total devotion to this great God, this gloriously merciful God, we are transformed, Paul writes in verse 2, by the renewal of our mind. He says we are not conformed to this world, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is why, and I'm so pleased to see, the Word of God must be central in the gathered worship of the church, but also in our lives individually throughout the week. That is our hope for the renewal of our mind. This world is always messaging us. And the only way to counter the message of this physical, invisible world is with reminders from the invisible kingdom, that of the kingdom of heaven, only given through God's word. We literally break the mold of the ways of this world through the renewal of our mind by God's word. And we're freed from the mold of this world to be transformed because our identity is no longer in this place. We have a new hope and a new identity in the work of the Lord Jesus. Have you ever seen a carnival mirror? These are mirrors that have various curves and provide quite a bit of fun, even for old guys like myself. You may walk in front of a mirror and find yourself stretched and lean like Gumby or short and squatty. I kind of like the ones that make me look a little swole. But carnival mirrors give us an inflated view of ourselves. It it distorts or changes how we might look upon ourselves. But I'm curious this morning, in a room with this crowd, how do you think about yourself? And how do you think about others in this room? I fear that it is quite common for Christians, even in a church such as this, may be guilty of a sinister comparison by really applying a spiritual carnival mirror to ourselves to give us an inflated view of ourselves. This subtle sin has likely occurred, perhaps unnoticed, in many of our hearts this morning as we gather Well, Paul has stated that our gospel identity uh, leads us to lives of total devotion to God in verses 1 and 2. And then he urgently applies a sharp warning for us in verse 3. Look with me. He writes, For by the grace given to me, which is a reminder of his apostleship. This is how he begins the letter in chapter 1 of Romans. So by this grace given to me, I now say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Another translation of this verse could be as such. 
Don't cherish inflated ideas of yourself. Don't cherish inflated ideas of yourself, but have sane estimation. I know I could make everyone in this room right now wince in your seat. If I grabbed a balloon and like I like to show off in front of my sons how much more quickly than them, these former trumpet player lungs can, can blow and fill a balloon. So if I filled it to capacity and then if I continued to blow and blow, I would see many of you begin to maybe cover your ears, grip the edge of your pew and perhaps lean back in your seat because you know what is about to happen, don't you? This inflated balloon is one change in barometric pressure or from a touch on the ground or perhaps one more puff of air from bursting. Inflated means it's vulnerable to burst or perhaps it's already bursted. This is the idea that Paul's showing us when he says, I appeal to you that you would not think more highly of yourselves than you ought. We find ourselves like this overinflated balloon just about to rupture. Well, what are ways that we as followers of Christ may be guilty of doing that, even here today? I'd like to present three ways that this may be happening. One is through self-reliance, through self-reliance. So often Christians may walk through the Christian life, nod their head at fellowship, faithfully gather with the saints on a Sunday, but don't really believe that they need these people around them. It's a subtle sin that announces both to God and to others, I am sufficient in and of myself. I'll be just fine. Thank you very much. Self-reliance is a way we think of ourselves with a more highly than we ought. Another way uh, many of us may be prone to sin is with self-protection. Self-protection leads us to simply keep others at arm's length, fearful that I might be hurt again by this person or fearful that I might be exposed or found out that I'm not who I present myself to be. Self-protection is a way we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And, and then a third one, self-importance. You tend to be addicted to busyness as a way to fill a, fill a void of uh, empty or a fill a void of relationships in your life. You might have a higher concern for someone's respect for you than actually for your responsibility to care for another. In other words, you may be more concerned that people think well of your accomplishments, in other words, of your importance, than you're concerned that they think well of your impact or the, the way your life has impacted them. This self-importance leads us to be concerned with what others think of us. And perhaps even towards the church, it may lead us in selfish ways to think, well, I didn't really like this. Or consumer-like preferences towards the church community. This idea of self-importance. It causes us to prioritize our wants and goals over the needs of the community or over the mission of the church. All of these ways could be subtly uh, located in our hearts and perhaps each of us have a tendency towards one of these, but yet never uh, be uh, visible to the church. Well, the world's answer to our identity crises of this 
how do we think about ourselves is, is, the, is the, the teaching of self-esteem. Of self-esteem is the world's answer for our identity. See how wonderful you are. Think about all the great things you've accomplished. You really need to really feel good about yourself. You need to love yourself. You need to look from within and take pride in, in what you've done and what you've accomplished. All the while deceiving the world around us and deceiving even us to set our own standard of ourselves and to set our own evaluation of us achieving that standard. So as long as I feel good about myself, then I'm okay. The self-esteem movement. But God's word calls us to think in a different way. What we see here in verse three, Paul continues. He says, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned well, this word sober is exactly what you would think it means. It's the alternative to drunkenness. It's accurately in touch with reality. God's word calls us, friend, think of yourself accurately according to reality. Well, what is this reality? What is this that I, we are free from having to inject synthetic uh, uh, esteem to our lives. We're free from this summons from this world, from having to find significance from consuming on other people or live the praise of man. This new identity through the gospel frees us. How then shall we regard ourselves? Well, as John Stott points out, he says we can renounce two extremes, both of self-hatred and renounce the extreme of self-love. We're freed from that through the gospel. We're freed from despising ourselves and we're freed from flattering ourselves. How can we avoid a self-evaluation that is either too low or too high and instead obey Paul's command to think with sober judgment? Stott says the cross of Christ supplies the answer for it calls us both to self-denial and to self-affirmation. It tells us that we are already new people because we have died and risen with Christ. So at the cross of Christ, we can acknowledge with sober judgment the depth of our evil. The depth of our brokenness is exposed by the cross of Christ. It took that shameful slaughter of the sinless Son of God to cover, yes, you and yours and my sin. It exposes us. But also, we find the intimate belonging and affirmation at the cross of Christ. For as we just read of the, of the Son of God, where the, the Father says, My Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, that same word of blessing, of acceptance before God, is also upon all who would trust on the Lord Jesus. And they receive that affirmation and that belonging through their identity of trusting renouncing self-trust and placing their hope in the work of the Lord Jesus. So the only accurate mirror through which to think of ourselves is the mirror at the cross of Christ, where we see both the depth of our sin and the radical righteousness of Christ that is ours by grace. In the book of Revelation, we see a, a scene of the 24 elders at the throne of grace before the, the holy presence of God. And we see them depicted as casting 
crowns from their head as they are reigning with Christ. They cast their crowns at the feet of the holy presence of God. Commenting on this, Elizabeth Elliot points out, perhaps further away from God, saints are content to wear their crowns. As we accept our nothingness, we learn more of Christ. Friend, is that true today? Are you content to wear a crown seeking some form of identity or glory or or vain estimation of yourself? It is only when we come closer to the holy presence of God that we are freed to find our identity in him. Is that not your desire, to be freed from the shackles of identity in this world that will always drink and always consume you and yet never fulfill you? We're freed from that. The gospel forms our identity. And apart from the gospel, we can't see ourselves rightly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, writes this, only he who lives by the forgiveness of his sin in Jesus Christ will rightly think little of himself. When one sees that Christ is the standard of measurement, he will not think of himself more highly than he ought, but will think of himself with sober judgment. And this right thinking of ourself is the beginning of the biblical potential of life together in the fellowship of the church. And nothing else that we're going to talk about the rest of the message today as Paul continues forward to apply the gospel for the church. Nothing else will matter and nothing else will make sense and is really of any relevance if we as God's people first and foremost are not rightly viewing our identity in Christ alone. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ or this sounds strange to you, this idea of being freed from the, the need of affirmation of this world, There is hope in life and forgiveness at the cross. And even for those who have found that, but yet perhaps identify the sirens of the the affirmation of the ways of this world, the economy of this world, be freed from that. Be freed to look upon yourself with sane estimation, with sober judgment. Only then can we begin to taste of this biblical potential of the fellowship of the church. So not only does the gospel form your identity, secondly, the gospel shapes the church as it creates our belonging. The gospel creates our belonging. When Christ saves us, he then forges us together with other Christians. The apostle Paul uses the metaphor of the body to describe both the unity and diversity And even more so, the vital interdependence we have together within the church, one for the other. Look with me at verse 4. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We see first there is a radical diversity in the church. There's diversity within our belonging together. Are you okay with this idea that God would form together many different members into this one body of Christ? 
Paul speaks against this desire we may commonly fall prone to of having equality with others, of, of looking at others' gifts or others' strengths and wanting to be like that person. He speaks against this desire for everyone to be the same. Such a desire goes against God's fundal, fundamental purpose in giving us grace gifts. Having differing gifts and differing roles within the church does certainly not mean in any way that one member is inferior to another, nor does it mean that someone is superior to another. But yet that would be the lie that the world and worldly thinking would lead us to believe. Some members of the body are tempted at various times to feel inferior. And the apostle Paul addresses this in a similar way in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to look at verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, he does the comparison here. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. You may think, well, I'm only a lowly, clumsy foot and I'm not a useful and productive hand. Or conversely, you may think I'm just an ugly, misshapen ear instead of a beautiful eye. That's what Paul hits on in verse 16. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. The body of Christ is composed of many different members. There is not this boring kind of sameness. Yet sometimes, in our own judgments, other members of the body may seem weaker than you. Do you ever feel that? They're not functioning properly, or they may have a role I, I can be tempted to think is less valuable. Bonhoeffer, again, is helpful as he says this. Every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also that the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of fellowship. The elimination of the weak is the death of the fellowship. How do you view yourself this morning? I don't know whether you view yourself as strong or weak, but for any who is strong, you do have areas of weakness as well. And for those that you may see as weaker or be tempted to view as weaker, the truth is they have areas of strength as well that are different than you. And Bonhoeffer captures this idea of what Paul is telling us. We need one another. As verse 3 showed us, no member should think that he is more important. And recognizing this splendid diversity within the body of Christ frees us to be who God has called us to be by faith rather than having to try to imitate the roles or the gifts that we may see in other people. Church, let's resist with all that we have any notion that would attach inferiority or superiority to any member of our church. There is only one head of the body, and that is Lord Jesus. And he says, we see he will not share his glory with another. And any other man other than the Lord Jesus is 
one step away from a failure, from falling, from uh, not finishing the race well. Let us look upon one another with sane estimation in the beautiful diversity of the church. But we also see the church is, has a unity. It is diverse, yet with a, a stalwart unity. Look at verse 5. He says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. One body, where? In Christ. Connection with Christ. Trusting in Christ, I am found in Christ. And when I am found in Christ, I look around and I see, look, there's other people here in the same place as I am. So we must recognize that as we're formed, we, our identity or belonging is formed together. It's not a horizontal relationship. It is first a, a vertical or a spiritual relationship as a member is united to Christ, then he is placed in horizontal fellowship and relationship. The book of 1 John chapter 1, John elaborates on this idea of our fellowship with one another is first through our fellowship with the Son. So the very intimacy that describes your relationship to Christ is the same word that John uses to describe our relationships with one another in the church. So the reality then is that if one arm within the body is bleeding badly, every limb will find itself weaker. And if the arm is working hard to feed the mouth, every limb on the body is strengthened. While no member of the body is inferior, we must recognize that no member of the body is all sufficient in and of himself either. The church isn't a club where people of the same interests gather, like the chess club, the frisbee club, the rotary club, chamber of commerce, knitting club, scrapbooking club. There's so many non-supernatural ways that we like to relate to people. God has hardwired us for community, but the church demonstrates a supernatural community when men and women who may have nothing else in common find their very life together. As Paul says, we are individually members one of another. We are not identified by our socioeconomic status, by the color of our skin, by our gender, or whether we're jocks or whether we're nerds. The elbow and the ear may not seem to have anything in common, but they are both a part of the same body. And they both are interdependent upon one another. And in the same way, church members who are very different uh, from worldly standards have the most important thing in common, can share in intimate unity together. And friends, that is the potential for Emmanuel Church. That is what God is doing here among this fellowship and what he is pleased to do. This is a supernatural unity. This is distinctive. And as the saints walk in the beautiful diversity and unity forged together in belonging by the gospel of Christ, then does it create a compelling community to the outside world that, as Francis Schaeffer said, true Christian community is the final apologetic. In other words, we can lay out defenses for the veracity of the Bible, for the, the truth of the resurrection of Christ, 
The world will make arguments against that. But when the world sees the compelling community of the church gathered, they have no explanations. It's the final apologetic. So as we think about this belonging by the gospel, I just ask you, how is your life expressing in a purposeful way living this out among the saints at Emmanuel Church? I'm certain that if Pastor Alex were up right now, he would cast vision for the value of small groups and participating in the life of the church as ways to express this one another life together, unity and diversity. But a a caution, many of you may be involved with a small group, but mere attendance at a small group does not mean you are tasting of this biblical potential of fellowship, does it? Even showing up today, you shake a hand, you stand, you sit, you may walk out and be all alone. Involvement in a mere way does not mean we are practicing this biblical vision of fellowship unless it is producing and increasing my love for other people, increasing my concern, my care for other people, unless my focus is moving away from me to the good and the upbuilding of other people around me. That's the beginning of the taste of fellowship. I may be attending a small group, but my experience could perhaps be far less than the potential of biblical fellowship. Bruce Milne has written a very helpful book called We Belong Together, written before I was born. It's out of print now. I lent mine out. It never came back. But I was able to find another copy online, so I do commend it to you. Bruce Milne, We Belong Together. But he describes fellowship in this way. Jesus got involved at the price of a cross. How can it be that there is so little of his cross about our living? To love means to be vulnerable. It means accepting responsibility. It means giving ourselves away. Is this perhaps the reason why we are so uninvolved with human need so much of the time? Our refusal to take up the cross? We are a cross-shaped community. We don't gather today for consuming. We don't gather today to say, what can I get out of these people? Being identified as people of the cross, formed in Christ with one another, my mind shift changes. Yes, we benefit, but my goal is how can I come using my gifts for the building up of the body, for the health of the whole. Fellowship is not the easy road. I've had so many poor uh, misconceptions of this in my own life, I must confess. In a college student, with people just like me in my dorm or my apartment, we thought we had amazing experiences of fellowship. And while we certainly had many great markers of fellowship, I often found it was quite easy and comfortable. Fellowship is often not glamorous. It is actually the real life die to yourself. Love your neighbor. Serve a sister when you're tired. Care for a broken brother. Speak a word of admonition. Share a burden. Way of life. 
that displays the character and the glory of God in a way that you will not find at the Rotary Club. God's glory is revealed in the diversity and the unity of his church. A healthy church is a compelling display of God's glory. So the gospel shapes the church as it forms our identity, it creates our belonging, and finally, as it gifts us to work. It gifts us to work. I'm mainly going to look at verse 6 today. Um, And and here's simply what Paul's saying. it's, It's what the foreman might would say to the to the, the, the teenager they've just brought onto the job. Well, don't just stand there, do something. Every Christian has been given gifts by the grace of God. These are charismata, these are called grace gifts. Yes, you and you, each of you, by God's grace, have been gifted with gifts for the upbuilding of the church. Look at verse 6. The scripture is so clear. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now let me back up to verse 3. Notice what he said. For by the grace given to me, I say to who? What does he say? Everyone among you. So Paul's intention for this letter as it's being read is for everyone among you, for each person in the hearing of this letter to the church in Rome and by proxy to each of us today by the Spirit of God. To each one of us, coming back down to verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let us acknowledge each person's gifts will differ. Praise God I'm not just a big eyeball up here. Praise God for the diversity and interdependence of each member of my body so that it works together. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, as he has given gifts to the church that the body may build itself up in love. God's gifts are the way that he has divinely appointed that Emmanuel church would fulfill the mission that it would not drift to become a country club, to become a social activist group, but to be the visible representation of the holy God in the city of Winston-Salem and to the nations. God has brought gifts. So as each one exercises his gifts, others are strengthened in their faith. Do you realize, friend, this church will be strengthened in its faith as you exercise your gifts within the church. The body will be bound closer together. The fellowship will be deepened and rooted together. We could spend much more time on this, but I want to make a couple of observations because if you're like me, you may be sitting here and be like, well, how do I discern my gifts? I I, I don't know what my gifts are. I'd like to offer four encouragements for you to discover your gifts. First is self-examination. Again, in verse three, Paul tells us to think with sober judgment. Think accurately about ourselves. Examine yourself. You could think of interests. What is it you enjoy? What sort of ministry simply are you interested in doing? Maybe you see perceived needs. You perceive needs within the church. You may be bothered today of something in this gathering that you know could be done uh, in a way that would be more orderly 
or done with a greater degree of excellence. You may have a gift to come and to help address that. Maybe it's effectiveness. Am I good at what I enjoy? Do people seem to be helped when I serve in this way? Self-examination. But let me first caution you too that having an enthusiastic encounter with Jesus, many a person has sensed, oh, God must have called me to the mission field or to be a pastor. And they designate this call upon themselves and off they go to seminary and perhaps they go on into some ministry role. But an encounter with Jesus does not simply mean or assure that one would be called in such a way. We must avoid the mistake of thinking that God wants us all to have the same gifts with the same ministries and the same results. It's so important that we go even to our spiritual leaders, to the elders, to ask for affirmation upon evidences of such a call in one's life. It is the church that calls out leaders and officers in the church. And, you know, you may have come across a spiritual gift inventory. I I remember those going around the college campus when I was a student involved with campus ministry. You can do these online or maybe it's a little booklet. You sit on your living room couch and you check boxes and then it tells you, voila, here are your spiritual gifts. Anybody ever done one of those before? I see a few hands. Okay. Well, these could be okay as a practice of self-examination. I don't want to completely say they're worthless, but they could give the false impression that one is to discover his spiritual gifts by sitting on the couch. Apart from vital involvement with the church. So my second encouragement is we need experience. Do something, as Paul was saying, let him use it in verse 6. You learn your gifts as you minister. Do you think you have a set of gifts? Begin to serve in that area. Ask for observation and for input into your lives. And try all sorts of ministries, learning your aptitudes. And other members of the body will help you discern and confirm the gifts in your life. Thirdly, study the biblical lists. And we see one right before us here, continuing in verses 7 and 8. You can find similar lists, although each is different. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, also verse 28. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, and verse 28, as well as Ephesians 4, 11. These are other lists. Each of these is, is unique. So I think that should free us from feeling like there, there are only six spiritual gifts and you must fit in one of these six giftings. I think there are many diverse gifts God is pleased to give to the church. We'll see in general categories, there are speaking gifts, leading gifts, there are gifts related to serving, and even gifts perhaps that are sign gifts that uh, perhaps are not uh, practiced today, but were signs of the apostolic a day uh, shortly after Christ was here. But study the biblical list. And then fourthly, as Paul said in verse six, let us use them. Get to work, roll up your sleeves, use it or, or do it. This is a, is a great way to learn your gifts. God gives us as he chooses. We're not to say, I want to use my gift in a different way, but I, I like doing what that guy does or what that sister does. Praise the Lord and celebrate the diversity of the gifts within the body. For only through diverse gifts may we have a unity of the cross to fulfill the mission of the church. So 
whatever our gift. Paul's charge applies to all of us. We are to expend our lives for the sake of eternal things through the triumphant body of Christ. The gospel shapes the church, friends, through forming our identity, through creating our belonging, and through gifting us for work, not for our sake, but for others. And as we walk in this fellowship, we will see Emmanuel Church be a compelling and glorious and supernatural and powerful attestation or display to the glory of Jesus Christ, to this city, to this college campus, and beyond. Would you give yourself fully to this cause? Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And we do pray by your spirit you would continue to do this vital work through the soul, through the life of this congregation, forming it and shaping it according to this great message of Christ crucified so that brothers and sisters here would let their lives be worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Be pleased to do this, Father. Bless this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.